now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Hello and welcome to Just Science. I'm Lauren Mangum, your producer and host this week. As our normal listeners can already tell, we are doing things a little different to celebrate National Forensic Science Week. Just Science will be releasing multiple Just So You Know episodes, where you'll be hearing directly from the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence's team. Today, we have Dr. Megan Grabenauer on to discuss her forensic science background and all the resources she brings to the FTCOE. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thank you. What is your current title at RTI International? My current title is a research chemist. Okay, and what exactly does that mean? I run research projects, so the research and development side of things. I write proposals for grant funding. I come up with project ideas. If we're lucky enough that the funding agency happens to agree in their funding priorities with the ideas that we have, uh, we get the grants in or the cooperative agreements or things of that nature, and then we run the projects and get to do the research. We write the papers and get the publications out. We're very active in the scientific community with peer-reviewed publications and connections to the academic researchers as well. How did you get into forensics? You know, I don't really know, and you even gave me the question ahead of time that you were going to ask this, and I was trying to think about how to get into forensics. I couldn't say. I've always had an interest in forensics. It was sort of before CSI, and all of that became really popular, so I don't know how I got so interested in it, but I've always kind of been interested And when I was in graduate school, I was getting a a degree in chemistry. It became very clear to me as I was trying out different things that I really liked the applied science and research much more than the basic research. Uh, There's a place for both. Both are very important. But I I really like the, the closer connection to the end use of the science that you're doing. And forensics is a, a perfect example of where you're, you're using science. The research is very close to the actual application in the field. I can understand that. You want to see your research come to fruition and how it's actually used. Yeah. Okay, so you went directly from undergrad straight into a PhD program, or was there anything in between there? I worked for a couple years. I, okay. I, I finished my undergrad. I got a, a dual major in chemistry and mathematics because I loved math. And I worked for a couple years, and I was working in the heat of Davis, California, in a refrigerator in a cold room doing protein purification. And it was like 108 degrees outside, and I'm inside, and they had like ski bibs and warm jackets and gloves. And I had to step outside every few minutes because you, you get so cold, your fingers don't work well. Oh, wow. And you're trying to do these very fine like pipetting and motions, and you really just have to take a break and warm up. And I just was sitting there one day thinking, this sucks. Like, (laughs) I don't want to be the one in the refrigerator. I want to be more in charge of the direction of the research that I'm doing. Okay. And at that point, I decided to apply for graduate school to go on and get an advanced degree in chemistry. Where did you go to graduate school? UC Santa Barbara. It was a physical chemistry degree with an emphasis in mass spectrometry. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm sure John Morgan loves the mass spec part of your background. Yeah. (laughs) We all know that he enjoys that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that process for you for applying for your PhD and what all that entailed? Yeah. So I knew I had an interest in forensics. I want to do research. I want to do forensics. So I got in touch with a couple of crime lab directors and just asked to talk to them about, you know, advice about if one day I want to work in a crime lab or something in the forensics realm, what kind of education would they recommend? 
And at the time, there really weren't masters in forensics programs. Forensics in higher education hadn't really caught on yet. And they all said, get a chemistry degree. If you know the chemistry, we can teach you the forensics. But it's really hard if you don't have that solid chemistry foundation. So that's what inspired me to go in with for the chemistry degree. Okay. And then I applied to a few schools. At the time, Ohio University had an analytical chemistry program, and they had, I think they were the only ones that had any kind of forensic emphasis on it. I applied to a few different places, but then for other family considerations, I ended up wanting to stay within the state of California. Okay. And so I accepted graduate spot at UC Santa Barbara. Okay. What piqued your interest about forensic science? Was there like a moment where you were something happened and you were like, yeah, that's that's exactly where I want to go. I don't think there was, no. So in grad school, I, my dissertation and my graduate work centered around neurodegenerative diseases, protein misfolding, so looking at Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, mad cow disease in particular was what I was working wow. on. And I used a technique called IM mobility mass spectrometry. Okay. And that's actually how I ended up being recruited to come to RTI. RTI had, I published a paper on our findings on this protein alpha-synuclein and its role in Parkinson's disease using eye mobility mass spectrometry, which not a lot of people do. RTI had just purchased their first eye mobility mass spectrometer and were looking for a new researcher to join the research team who, who was familiar with the technique, who was looking to start a new career, new research somewhere, and it just was a very good fit. So were you finished with your PhD at the point that RTI reached out to you, or yeah. were you okay? I finished my PhD and I was looking for jobs, and it was it just worked out perfect. It did, and it was so when I came for the interview, I'd never heard of RTI. Okay, first of all, yeah, I didn't know that they did forensics, and it was an all day interview, and it was just group after group after group of people, and one of the groups of people I met with was the Center for Forensic Sciences. Okay, and when I I got there in the morning, I saw that on the agenda, I went. Oh, wow, you know, this is this is really neat. Right. Um, and it ended up being a position where I could, like, do forensics research and still do protein folding and confirmation research. And I think it's it's highly unusual to find a job that would allow both of those interests at the same time. Right, right, yeah. I mean, that's there's plenty of benefits. So you move from California and you move to uh, RTP North Carolina. And you were working on various grants at this point. Were any of those your grants that you owned? Yeah. So I joined RTI in 2010. I think I I had phenomenal success in my early grant writing, which very grateful for and lucky for. I got my first funding as a co-PI in 2012. Okay. At the time, I was working in the analytical chemistry group here at RTI. I got connected with some current research that the Center for Forensic Science was already doing was a grant that they had in place, and I got pulled in to come in and work on that with them. Do you remember what that research was? That was developing a database of new psychoactive substances. Oh, wow. Who else were you working with on that? Yep, Dr. Peter Stout and Dr. Jerry Rapera-Miller were the really the the lead PhD researchers in the center at that time. Okay, and so this database housed what exactly? Uh, Well, the idea was it was going to be a web-accessible database that had mass spectra of newly emerging drugs. Okay. So designer drugs, as they were called, or novel psychoactive substances, they're referred to more now. As they come out, I mean, they were coming out so fast at the time that the, the labs doing casework couldn't keep up. 
you know, you you don't have a reference sample for something. You can't run your, your reference along with your sample because you don't know what's in your sample and you don't know what the reference is. So it was a way to provide, you know, we could... We had the time, we had the resources, we could buy the references, we could have our synthetic chemistry group in-house make new molecules, acquire the spectra, and put them up in a database for those who are doing casework to access. After the database, did you have any other follow-up grants? Yeah, I had a grant that was um, looking at characterizing novels like Wactive Substances, so doing some metabolite identification. So when you have a new drug that comes along, you maybe have identified the drug, but once a person takes the drug and now you're looking in their urine, most of the time the parent compound, the drug itself, is not excreted in large amounts in the urine. It's been metabolized into some other form. And when it's a new drug, you don't know what that form is. We know what the metabolites of cocaine and methamphetamine and heroin are. We didn't know at the time what's the metabolite of JWHO18. Our grant, we were doing that kind of work. We were doing it with in vitro studies. We were looking at hepatocyte incubations and microsome incubations to determine new metabolites. But also, we were fortunate enough, we have a behavioral pharmacology group on site. Okay. And they were doing some behavioral studies with mice. I'm looking at the effects of these new compounds. And so we were able to team up with them. And at the end of their behavioral studies, we collected the urine from those mice. And then we could test that urine and try to figure out what the metabolites of the compounds they were given. Which is one of the benefits of RTI is we're very big. There's all kinds of different departments that you can tap into here, which is a positive for RTI. Is there any other useful or helpful information that you would like to tell young forensic science researchers? Something that maybe you didn't know when you first started, but you feel like it's helpful now? I never had that that practitioner level experience. I know a lot of people who've gotten into forensic science research started out in a crime lab or they worked in a crime lab. For those who don't go that path, I think it's very important and I've tried very hard to get that practitioner perspective. It's a very different in a research lab with the resources and the things that we have at our disposal than what most practicing forensic scientists are doing. And so visit your local crime lab, go on a ride along. I mean, really, really try to to get to know the challenges in the field that you're trying to do the research to improve. You, you really can't be proposing work if you don't know the conditions that people are working in and what they're trying to do. So what is the most interesting thing that you have seen or done in research? The most interesting thing for me was... I'd been here for maybe a year or two. The synthetic cannabinoids issue was was really coming to a max. And one of our fellow researchers, who I worked with at the time, who um, she actually worked with John Huffman in the JWH synthesis and stuff. She was very interested in synthetic cannabinoids. And she had stopped by a gas station and picked up this brownie called a lazy cake. Okay. And she brought it to me. She's like, I know you actually worked in the lab and you do chemistry stuff. Can you tell me what's in this brownie? And we had a dart instrument. I'm like, well, sure, let's try and dart it, which is a, it's a direct ionization technique where you don't need to do any kind of sample prep. So we literally, we, we took a hunk of brownie with tweezers and put it in the source of the instrument to identify if there were maybe any synthetic cannabinoids in this lazy cake brownie. And uh, it turns out there wasn't. There was melatonin, oh, uh, you know, okay. a natural sleep aid, hence the name Lazy Cake. But that day, the lab 
smelled like freshly baked brownies. (laughs) That's not normal. That is not normal for the lab. No. And it also made me realize we really needed to rethink our ventilation and our our portable hood (laughs) because we should not be smelling what we're ionizing into the instrument. So things were learned that Uh day about the lazy cake and about RTI's lab. (laughs) And, And, you know, I had just never, I'd never thought about analyzing a brownie, you know. Right. It was just a very, it's a first for me and the first of many interesting things. Right now, you have an NIJ grant. And what is that NIJ grant? So that NIJ grant specifically is looking for markers of cannabis impairment. Okay. So legalization of cannabis is is really taking off both recreationally and medicinally. Many states are legalizing it, even though it's illegal at the federal level. But a lot of it's happening through ballot initiatives. And so legalization is happening before regulation is happening and regulation is a bit slow to catch up. Okay. So you have this issue of driving under the influence of cannabis impairments. Oh wow. And how do you determine cannabis impairment? It's very different than alcohol impairment. Right now a lot of people use THC, which is the psychoactive component if you smoke marijuana or eat a cannabis brownie or something like that. And if you detect THC in somebody's blood, it's a very good indicator that they have consumed cannabis in some form. What research has shown over and over again is that it is not a good indicator of if they are currently impaired by that cannabis. So when cannabis was illegal, all you had to do was show that someone had used it and they've broken the law. Correct. Now that it's illegal in a lot of states, if you smoked a joint three weeks ago, you can arguably probably drive a car today. Right. You know, but there may still be THC in your blood or your urine sample. So the issue that really needs to be resolved is how do you determine impairment in the moment by cannabis? And that's what our project is about. Okay. And so do you know if states have, so for instance, alcohol, like there is a set limit. Is there a set limit for impairment? It varies by state. Okay. So what you're talking about is a per se law where for alcohol, it's 0.08. If your blood alcohol is above 0.08, impaired or not, they've set that that is the level above which you get a DUI. Some states have set that based on like two nanograms per mil of THC in the blood. But really, the science does not support any of those per se laws that have been set. The science needs to catch up so that appropriate regulations can be made. Okay. When did you receive your grant? What year were you? <laughs> we officially got awarded the funding almost two years ago. Okay. It took about a year for the project to get going because it's an, it's an NIJ, so Department of Justice, grant. We have to have FDA approval because we're doing a clinical study where people are dosing, and we need DEA and NIDA approval to supply the cannabis for the study. So getting all those federal agencies and satisfying all of the regulatory requirements and the the institutional review board for the ethical components of any time you use human subjects in a trial, it's a very lengthy process to do any kind of study like this. So it took about a year before we had all the, the regulatory components satisfied and we could actually start work. And we've been working on it now for about nine months. So many hurdles to get you started. Yes. So do you mind giving an update of where you're at right now, currently in your research at the tail end of 2018? Yeah, so the clinical study is underway. We have uh, participants who have been through the study. We're trying to get enough participants that we have a good solid data set. We're more probably about halfway there and just collecting the initial data and the, the blood and urine samples, after which we'll start analyzing them and looking for some markers. Okay. All right. Great. That sounds that's awesome. 
Can you tell us one uh, interesting personal fact about yourself? I have a pilot's license. Oh, wow. That is, that's really interesting. Most people don't know that about me. I actually got it my senior year of high school. I took flying lessons. I worked as a hostess at Marie Callender's, and I saved up my money. It's something I always wanted to do. Okay. And um, got myself a pilot's license. So do you still fly? I haven't in several years. Okay. Um, I did for a long time, but it's been a while now. I I would not be. (laughs) You wouldn't want to get into play with me right now, and I would not be legal to fly today. But um, maybe maybe one day I'll get back into it. Yeah, that's maybe one day retirement time when everything's (laughs) settled down a little bit. You can get back into it. That's pretty amazing, actually, especially for how young you were. That's, That's pretty great. So we'll end on a fun question. If you could have any job you wanted outside of forensics and outside of research altogether, what would it be? I would love to, like, work in a tiki hut on a bench that, like, rents snorkel equipment to vacationers. Okay. Something where where everybody that comes in is on vacation and everybody's happy, everybody's having a good time, and you're there to help them have fun and have a good time. And I just, no stress, no responsibilities. Yeah. Easy living. Thank you, Dr. Megan Grabenauer, for being on Just Science in celebrating National Forensic Science Week. Thanks for having me. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.